Hi, uh, this is the, the last podcast on Hedda, um, and obviously it's not a chronological one, um, but it's about um, events on what I've been finding out and what I've been doing about her story up to now. And now, by now, by today, if we look back, um, Hedda's been dead for more than 30 years. I know that she's been very present, very alive in all our lives over the last couple of months because I've been talking about her all quarter. Um, but, but she's, well, you know this, but it's been a long time. But she's with me all the time because um, I've been researching her life and by that extension, the life of many other members of my family now for three years. And honestly, there is so much Stuff. And I, I don't add it to the podcast because honestly, I worry that if I add all these other people to the story, you and I will lose focus on the one that got us here, namely Hedda. But I do want to know, I, I mean, I mean, what I, it's worth knowing that, you know, in this research that I'm doing, like all research, you start with one question, you know, who was my great-grandmother, and you end up with a hundred questions. I mean, I may have found some answers, and I've shared those with you, but I also have so many more new questions. And honestly, I think that's what makes this project so f much fun, and what keeps me going, and what I hope you guys have learned, which is that it's not the answers that matter, although they, you know, they're, they're important, but it's the new questions that those answers raise. So one of the strange things that have that's happened since I sort of started this class and the class is online, so there's sort of information about it available um, on the internet, is that twice I've gotten emails from complete strangers who were looking for my family members and had found me through information about Hedda online because of this class. So one of these calls was from a forensic insurance researcher. And I'd, I'd like you to take note, for those of you who are thinking maybe that you can major in history, a forensic insurance researcher, that's a real job. Forensic researchers are hired or, or work for insurance companies, and their job is to find heirs of people who die without leaving a will. So somebody has assets, they die, they have no will, legally those assets have to be distributed to somebody. And so a forensic researcher looks for distant heirs and goes through sort of any kind of public record and any record available anywhere to find those heirs. That's how I got that phone call. Now, another person contact, who contacted me was a Belgian journalist who was, um, who was writing a piece on Germany, German refugees who had fled to Belgium during World War II and who had sold artworks in Germany or, even, or in Belgium under duress, right, in order to survive during the war. And, and currently, and it's been actually going for a while, there's a restitution process underway. And that restitution process is designed specifically for people whose artworks and homes were confiscated by the German government, the Nazi government, um, before the war or, or even during the war. And under this restitution process, selling a painting to survive during the war is essentially similar to losing it to the Nazis. And so governments today are trying to reunite people with the 
paintings and works of art that they had to sell to survive under duress. And so this journalist was looking for anyone with ties to German Jews in Belgium, which, you know, yes, I I have ties to them. Um, and this process, if you're interested in this process, there are two fairly recent movies um, that that will give you perspective on this. One was The Monument Men, and the other one is called The Woman in Gold. Um, so if you're interested in, in you know, the kind of research that you have to do in order to bring people, you know, sort of essentially return art to family members that might not even know that they, that they were part of their family inheritance, um, those movies are, are, are kind of fun. Anyway, each time I got these phone calls from complete strangers about questions that would not necessarily lead anywhere for me, um, I found out something more about Hedda's family. So the insurance agent alerted me to the fact that she had found information about Thea Siegel, Hedda's sister. This was the actress, the one who was married to a relatively well-known music critic before the war. And it turns out that she'd left to the United States in mid-1930s after her husband left her. So it's unclear if the relatively sort of famous uh, music critic had left her because the marriage was over or because he was under pressure for being married to a Jew as the Nazis came to power. And Thea's life in the U.S. is a bit obscure, but there are some details. She remarried. Actually, she she divorced and then married again. She was in some plays. Um, she also worked for an airline and passed herself off as a countess. And what I found so far suggests that she was eccentric to say the least. Um, but like Hedda's other sister, Eva, Thea also got cancer relatively early, and both sisters died in 1965. Um, Thea joined Hedda uh, in Belgium, where she'd ever actually never lived, um, and and died there. And Eva died in Paris, where she'd been living after spending the war in, in Switzerland. And in fact, this summer, right, a couple of months ago, I finally met Eva's son, who is cousin of my father. So I guess he's also my cousin. And he's now 78 years old, and it was really great to meet him because he he had sort of he didn't tell me anything I didn't know, but he did tell me that Hedda was his favorite aunt, and I did not know that. And I don't think of her as anyone's aunt. I think of her as my great grandmother. So that was it was another way of sort of changing the the perspective. A lot of what I know about Hedda comes from the boxes of documents that my aunt, my father's oldest sister, had in her cellar, and they were filled with photographs and letters and documents. I mean, those boxes include everything from receipts for a moving van um, to a document, a prize that was conferred by the grateful German nation to Ernst Segal, my great-grandfather, in 1960, after he helped German banks and Belgian banks work together in the aftermath of the war. I'm still grappling with that. Ernst, who had he had to flee Germany, who'd been sent to Sachsenhausen first, who had to pretend he was deaf and mute when he arrived in Belgium so that his accent would not give him away as German after war broke out. Ernst, whose German nationality was voided because he was a Jew and for for years did not have a nationality. He was he was nationless. Until Belgium finally agreed to make him and his wife and children citizens in 1950, he got a letter of recognition from the German government for his dedicated work. He also got one from the Belgian government, by the way. And and the Belgian government for years did not give him 
Belgian nationality because they question his right to that nationality since he had what one point been German. So I'm trying to imagine the kind of man Ernst was to have lost so much at the hands of one country's government and been treated so poorly by the other one, and still to work for both countries and then years later be honored with prizes for both of them. And all I can sort of conclude is that he, he, he did not hold grudges and that he did not hold grudges against the country. He understood that the governments changed. It wasn't the countries, it was the, the people in power. And I think his drive to survive and his drive for normalcy and his drive towards joy, which I also read in many of the letters that he wrote to Hedda, joy and finding joy, even in the darkest moments, were, were really sort of at the heart of Ernst's character. And I really wish I'd met him, but he died years before I was born. I've also learned a lot from my uncle Leo. Um, this is my father's sort of younger brother. He had nine brothers and sisters. And I really wanted to invite, well, I actually did invite Leo uh, to come talk to you, but um, he's not really, I don't think, it's not that he's not comfortable with the idea of a podcast, he just, I don't think he really understands um, what it means to be recorded for a podcast and not be able to have a conversation with the audience. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm still working on it. Um, so Leo's been doing huge amounts of research into the records of, of our family for years. Um, and by records, I don't mean the letters and the photographs that I've been looking at, but he, he goes into archives, sort of the documents that historians often refer to, like the local archive in Amsterdam and Brussels and Jerusalem. There are, there's, there are a couple of reasons he does that. A, these are sort of accessible records, um, public records, but also his focus is on the father's side of the family, right? Hedda was his grandmother on his mother's side, and he's researching my grandfather on my father's side or his father's family. Um, and the reason why there isn't uh, sort of boxes of documents in an aunt's um, cellar is because about 80 to 90% of that family was killed in concentration camps in the 1940s. And so he has to go look for public records in Amsterdam, Brussels, Jerusalem, because there are no cellars to look for photographs or letters in. So by contrast to my sort of grandfather's side family, the most of my grandmother's life or my great-grandmother's life family survived. Hedda's family was largely intact. I mean, there's one very distant cousin that was sent to a camp. Um, and it's not lost on me that the difference in, in how one side of the family experienced the 1940s is, is, is extraordinary between if you compare the other side. And I think that's, that's, that's not rare, right? This is a pretty good example of for how all of human history and experience, right? One nation's victory is another one's loss. Uh, a revolution will be written as victorious by one side and as disastrous by the other one. One territorial gain can only mean territorial loss for the other side. And that's, you know, that is, that's how it ends up being. And, and as I close the cycle of the podcast, 
And I think of how much I've learned from teaching this class. And, and I always learn from teaching this class and from reading your family stories and, and from delving deeper into mine. I realize I, that it's just more important than ever to understand the human condition at its most vulnerable, at its most human, at its least heroic and memorable. For example, when I read in Hedda's agenda that she met a friend regularly for coffee in Berlin, and that upon her arrival in Belgium, right after crossing into Belgium secretly by foot in the dark at night across the border, what she did that first day in Brussels was go for a walk and go for coffee. I mean, war hadn't broken out yet, but she'd just left her parents behind. She'd left into a very uncertain existence. And she was, you know, on her way to Australia, so she thought. So this was not just any day in Brussels. This was her first day in Brussels on her way to Australia. But what she wrote in her agenda was that she went for coffee. Who knows what other thoughts crossed her mind? But the records show that she had coffee. And, and, and her agenda is full of these little details that don't exactly say what she's thinking, but, but tells you what she was doing. And then you kind of have to fill in the blanks. And for example, for a week after Robert committed suicide, there's nothing in her agenda, just, just white pages until she notes a doctor's appointment. And I can only imagine the depth of sorrow that those white pages in that agenda mean. So I leave you with this thought. I hope none of you ever experience any of the horrors of a war like World War II or the wars that are currently raging across our globe. But whatever challenges you do face, and trust me, there will, there will be many challenges, I hope you face them with humility and with courage and perhaps try to find a little glimmer of hope and joy the way Ernst did, or go for coffee, no matter what, with a friend, the way Hedda would. Know that there will always be challenges. Before you, there will be challenges to follow. History in textbooks is a construct, but your history does not have to be. Don't let your history be a single story, and don't judge others by the single story they show you. Remember, there are always more stories to discover, there are more questions to ask. History is never as simple or as boring as you think.